3: Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullenane. When I began this podcast, I had hoped that a couple dozen people might tune in weekly. This month, we had over 4,500 downloads. I'm deeply humbled and delighted with the interest in this historical period, and I have no doubt that some of it is generated by a popular new TV show called The Gilded Age. You can watch it on HBO in the US and on Now TV in the UK and elsewhere. I've not yet seen it, but it's on my to do list for February. Maybe we can even do a show on it in good time. This week's show is a little different from other podcast episodes. The plight of early career scholars is well known in academic circles, but probably less so outside of them. No doubt someone still thinks that we live in ivory towers, but getting a job that requires academic research or or teaching, it's a tall order. And whether one applies to a university, a think tank, a broadcaster, or similar businesses, there will usually be hundreds of similar candidates, all highly qualified and highly accomplished. The trials of precarity, they vary from one person to the next, but many of us do unpaid work. Many of us juggle dozens of commitments to either our employer, our students, to our professional associations. We often use our weekends and holidays to catch up. Those at the outset of their career do all of this and more. So to showcase their amazing talent and spread the word about all of the interesting work that they do, I invited three early career scholars to talk to me about the research and teaching that excites them. Joining me first is Arup Mukherjee, a visiting scholar at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, who earned his PhD from Harvard's Kennedy School. Arup studied six key foreign policy decisions made during the administrations of William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt that led to the rise of US power in the world. And we'll talk a little bit about that work. Arup also studied in the UK, getting an MA from King's College in Peace and Security Studies, and an MSI from the London School of Economics and International Relations. He's an interdisciplinary expert on the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and we're going to talk about how deep we can venture into archival materials how presidential leadership and decision make- making was forged in this period, and how the outset of one's career offers opportunities and challenges. Welcome to the show, Arup.
4: Thank you so much uh, for having me. I, I'm a big fan of your of your uh, show.
3: Oh well, that's such a kind thing to say. Um, and that's actually how we got into contact. You and I. You happen to be listening to the show, and we uh, we we cross base uh, based on uh, I suppose a common love of the spanish-american war and and that time frame and some of the decisions that are made tell us a little bit about your phd which you finished in 2020 which is so interesting and takes a look at some of the decisions before and after the spanish-american war that influenced american imperialism and
4: expansion i was really uh when i was thinking about my phd i wanted to do something historical and um i kept i think maybe subconsciously i was sort of uh uh influenced by the the turmoil of the of the times, and initially thought, oh, I'll study the 1940s. And then I kept going back and thinking, oh, I need to study something a little crazier, or even a little crazier. And I uh, eventually sort of settled on the uh, 1890s and early 1900s, uh, an interest in foreign policy and international affairs. And so it was a very interesting time uh, for U.S. foreign policy to expanded greatly. It's a very old question in um, history as to why the United States um, sort of expanded its Foreign policy, and it uh, from the hemisphere to the world. Uh, nevertheless, I, I I was interested in it, and so um, I studied three different presidential decisions under William McKinley and and three under Teddy Roosevelt, which was the decision to um, go to war with Spain in the uh, Spanish-American War, annex the Philippines uh, later that year in 1898, annex Hawaii same year in 1898, and then the three under Roosevelt uh, were uh, the Panama Canal, uh, the Russo-Japanese War mediation, and his sort of channel mediation of the Algeciras Conference. They're
3: great topics to look at, and I think they're also somewhat undervalued since the centenary of the War of 1898. We've, we've kind of moved on in many ways, although the McKinley years seem to be coming back in fashion again. And one of the things that really struck me was that McKinley doesn't have an awful lot of historical papers to trawl through. How did you find that difficult uh, that those difficulties in researching the the administration.
4: Oh, it, it, it's so right, uh, and I think you know, of course, you know about this um, personally, of course, and um, uh, from your work, which I should say, uh, I would love to have a podcast uh, interviewing you uh, about your work because it was something that was so helpful for me in my thesis. The McKinley era is so hard to understand, and 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 I sort of went in there to the Library of Congress, and and I just you know you end up wasting so much time because you don't really know you're kind of waiting around and and don't understand how things are uh, organized because they're not really well organized, and so uh, McKinley was a very very uh, private person, didn't keep a diary, uh, conducted a lot of diplomacy in person rather than by letter, um, did a lot of it on on of course on the telephone. Uh, which was emerging at that time as a as a, a means of communication with executive departments, and so there aren't a lot of records that he has. I mean, there are, there's a hundred thousand documents in his papers, but they're all not exactly related to you know understanding decision making uh, with with respect to major policies. So what comes out is is are, are the the papers of his, his advisors, um, and those become very critical resources, and, and they are of course for for many presidents, but I think especially so. Uh, for such an enigmatic and secretive uh president as William McKinley.
3: Yeah, I was told when I was researching the McKinley years to go to George Cordelieu's papers. And I went back there again recently for some work that I'm doing on a, a completely different project. But you went to the Cordelieu papers and you did what I had wanted to do. Because if anyone's been to these papers, you will see that a lot of the notes are in shorthand. And I just sort of said when I went there, I can't, I can't get into this. I don't have the time or the energy, or the skills, but you you persisted. So tell us about what you found in the archives, because I think it's really
4: remarkable. Thank you. Well, the first time I saw, saw shorthand, I thought I had seen something nobody had ever seen. And I was like, they knew an alien language. Uh, I have come across something major. And of course, it's shorthand. And for those of uh, folks who are listening who are less familiar shorthand, there, there are basically different dialects of, or in sort of languages of shorthand, it's just a way that journalists, uh, stenographers, uh, secretaries, even some presidents would just take notes, and they kind of look like like chicken scratch, you know, sort of scribbles on a page. Um, and you're right, yes, Coral Yu was hired to be in the White House because he was very good at shorthand uh, and uh, was a stenographer. He has a diary, and a lot of it's in shorthand. And when it was released uh, to the public uh, in the '60s, his sort of all of his papers, um, the Library of Congress hired a shorthand translator, and translated many, many shorthand notes and memoranda, and I think critically for me, the diary he kept leading up to the Spanish-American War, basically, I I think, probably the single best resource for understanding um, what was going on in the mind of McKinley's close advisors um, in the the days leading up to the war. Amazingly, there are still words that are not translated from that, so for for one of my chapters for the thesis, I um, There's this very, very important entry, uh, April 2nd, um, 1898. So, you know, just a matter of days before uh, McKinley decides on war. There's like he's talking about the White House's reaction or so he's talking sort of about public opinion about the war and McKinley's position on it. And there's this there's a word that's just like missing. And so I thought I need to try to figure out what this is. Uh, and so I, I found a shorthand translator. Uh, we, we were actually both very confused. I bought a, I bought a little. It's from like 1905 on eBay. I bought like a shorthand, tra- like little dictionary translator thing. Uh, that it, it's basically meant to how to how to teach kids or people shorthand. Uh, and then just sort of spent some time trying to figure out what that word is or what, what, what it was when he wrote it down. Uh, I kind of, it actually, I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but it, it, it's, it was actually just a footnote in my thesis, the long footnote as to why I thought it was that word. And then I've sort of later turned it into a longer article, um, which uh, was published in War on the Rocks about, about a year ago. And, and
3: you got, you've got to tell us what the word is and, and what it means for the, those final days before McKinley decides to go to war because it, it does have a bearing, right?
4: I, I, I think so. The, the sentence that that, that he wrote uh, is this. and I should say Cordell, you at this point is one of I mean even though he's he's got the title of executive clerk, he is probably one of the closest secretaries or advice not he's not like Secretary of State at the time, but he he sort of he sort of has this role of press secretary, chief of staff, in the McKinley administration at this time. So he's, he's spending every day with the president and the sentences, the mail continues as much as ever. And with the exception of a few letters from irresponsible sources and from cranks, it is unanimously in favor of the president's course and against hasty and blank action. And so you can see that like, oh, he's describing the president's course. And what is that word? What is he describing? We sort of felt that the word is new, as in N-E-W, you know, the reason why it wasn't translated wasn't like the translator forgot. I think it's because it doesn't, the the word new actually, they don't actually look the same. Um, And you kind of have to intuit, okay, why would this be, it doesn't look exactly like new, why wouldn't it be any other word? Partly it's the shape, the, the placement of the carrot, you know, the way shorthand works are the, all these swoops and swirls and carrots and things that are, that are these symbols that of course represent sounds uh, in uh, the English language. And so we sort of thought it said hasty and new action, against hasty and new action. And and it reveals some major revelations. I think there are, of course, I should say there are, of course, many scholars and historians who have made, I think, versions of these points. I think there is something new, no pun intended, that this that this does reveal. The first is that they were judging Public opinion, you know, there's a lot of myths about the War of 1898 um, or Spanish-American Wars is more popularly known. Uh, one of which is that the uh, public was sort of was whipped up into a frenzy and pushed uh, McKinley to war. It's it's very hard to know what the public actually thought, but it is easier, I think, to try to understand what the White House thought, the public thought, and I think which is more important for the purposes of trying to understand McKinley's decision. Quarterly reveals here that. That actually they sort of saw it as supporting a policy of restraint. Uh, you know, it wasn't a sort of crumbling under this public pressure. They sort of saw them as being um, supportive of, and and that's something that I think um a lot of historians miss, not because um it's because it's this, it's the sort of narrative that has been promoted since the war itself. Um, I think the second thing is that it indicates the White House was judging public opinion about letters it received in the mail rather than in newspapers. I think it can be very easy to cherry pick newspaper editorials or opinions or articles that support what, what we think the white house might have thought was going on but but it shows that you know source that letters coming in were actually a major way that they viewed whether or not the public was supportive of their of their policy the sort of last revelation i think and this is i think something that this word alone reveals relative to kind of other evidence around uh you know the lead up to the to lead up to the war is that it's not thought to be the next logical step in diplomacy hasty and new action they thought going to war in on april 2nd and they again a couple of weeks later they did decide on war that would be hasty and they thought it would be new and so i think you know and i just use the word lead up and i and and and, and i actually think that's a problem cuz <laughs> cuz you know a lead up or a slide to war or a buildup feeling that it was leading towards something that people at the time of course didn't know what it was leading toward and I think this word "new" kind of captures that idea. It captures that that they didn't see this as a as the next thing. Uh, they saw war as a new a break from the path they're on, as something new.
3: I think it's such an important find, and I think you're you're right. And the three things that you've just laid out there about. It's significance is is real. For listeners who might not be as familiar as you and I with the timeline, though, I'll give them a couple of dates that stand out. So you you can back me up by this or you can correct me if I'm wrong. But on the 15th of February, the Maine explodes. And that's where the, the sort of what Richard Hofstadter said was the beginning of the psychic crisis where, you know, there's a war fever that is whipped up around the country. Then on the 21st of March, the official report, the investigation into the main disaster is published. U. writes this memo or this uh, this shorthand note on the 5th of April. It's two and a half or two weeks after the report is published, and the McKinley administration is still not moving towards war. So I think you're right. This really puts things into a a perspective that suggests that McKinley was more than just... um, uh, listening to
4: public opinion, he was actually deeply reticent. I mean, do you think that's uh, fair? I, oh, I think that's, I think that's right. We sort of, I think this is sort of a, a mental trap of hindsight bias or a version of a version of hindsight. So once war happens, we sort of think of various events like the USS Maine explosion as lead-up events, and in some ways, you know, they they are, they are to some extent. Of course, they they do condition and, and contextualize a certain crisis. Um, on the other hand, there are many situations in which. Uh, crises are averted. And yet, so when crises are not averted, we sort of think of them as, well, oh, this happened, then that happened, then that happened, and then that's why that happened. And actually, it's much more unclear, it's much more uncertain. And I think when you I think this is the sort of joy I generally get from reading archival material, uh for primary source documents, which, which I, I wish I had been exposed to in high school and in, in as an undergraduate is you're sort of steeping yourself in the uncertainty of the moment. You're sort of sitting where they sat, reading the things the people at the time are reading. And it puts you in their position. It sort of gives you that mindset that, whoa, they really, they were projecting many different futures. And I think when you look back, um, it's very, very hard to escape the single future that actually transpired, the real kind of past, so to speak.
3: I think that's a great point. I just wonder if I can ask you a little bit about how you apply that in your teaching, because you're right. If I had more access to primary documents in high school, I would have, uh, I certainly would have enjoyed the interpretation side of history a lot more than history is just a series of events. But how do you bring that to bear on your students in in, in the classrooms that you teach?
4: the The kind of pedagogical method that I there are many wonderful pedagogical methods um, that are great. You know, they're great. Uh, my favorite, uh, is historical simulation and what that is or what that involves. Um, it's basically a kind of, it's almost like a case study. And these are, these are, I'd say are more normal in professional schools. Uh, of course, business schools have case studies and, and the Kennedy school is a professional school of public policy and they have case studies. I, I, well, I don't know if it's as in vogue, uh, now as it once was, or as if it is, is in vogue in, in. in in, uh, as it is in business school. Um, but what I can say is that it's a very effective way to put students in the position of the decision maker. So basically, you give them a set of documents, maybe the documents, the most important documents that the president might have had or advisors might have had at that time. Let's say, uh, you know, a collection of a few articles and then, you know, 10 or 15 or maybe even fewer, uh, seven or eight uh, cables. And you sort of debate it, um, have them write. Uh, memos uh, about what what kind of course of action they would suggest, uh, and you debate it. And I think students, when you watch students kind of read these primary sources and then assume the seat of one decision maker, it's just a totally different way of interacting with the material, learning it, and understanding how uncertain things were.
3: You you're right, and I think you're you're particularly. well-suited this period this this foreign policy decision making of the period and what i mean by the period i mean really the american century is is very well suited because the decisions have great import and that makes them almost removed from the sort of human emotions feelings and um, difficulties that we have in, in making decisions i think so many of your friends and colleagues will agree with you that empathy is is essentially the thing that we need now to understand the past and and also how we connect that to our present as well. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was about the struggles of early career researchers. Um, How how do you think the wider historical community or uh, academic community, I should say, you know, can can do more to help early career researchers, because one of the things that this episode is really, you know, trying to do is showcase the outstanding work that's being done. And I think we've said a lot about how outstanding your work is, but also to to kind of showcase what needs to be done in in, in the academy for early career researchers.
4: Oh, um. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, I, r- I really appreciate that, uh, and I appreciate everyone, appreciate uh, you especially, I should say, uh, Mike, for doing this kind of an episode. It's very uh, flattering, first off, but also I think it's um, it's a uh, it's 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 such a gift that you you have this this podcast, just the the what, what you're doing for the community, and that's partly for those who study the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, but I also think um, generally for the historical community uh, and for those of us who are um, more junior in our careers. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I a lot of it is, uh, for me personally, there are maybe two kind of elements to this. One is, is it's definitely, well, at least as far as I can tell from my vantage point, it does not seem in vogue to study uh, presidential decision making. That, to me, very, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe clearly is not where diplomatic history is at the moment. There are many people who study it and study it very well, um, but I don't get the sense that that's the sort of thing that is in vogue and that is of interest in the many job postings that I see. Um, and I think that comes from a place of, um, of a, actually a false choice. One is that uh, it's a false choice that, you know, we should not to study the powerful um, and to study the powerless or those who've been overlooked. And I actually think that's a false choice. I think that uh, you can study uh broad-based and you should social attitudes, uh norms in society, and those at the top. Uh and actually it helps you understand those at the top. Uh and so part of what personally I've it, one of my interests in, in Professor Zoom is not just because I want to study what McKinley, but how is McKinley affected by some of these attitudes? And I think um the second element, which I think is very related to this, is is um is the element of silos, and I think you know there there have been I've you know read a few uh, pieces in uh, in some of the newsletters of um, Schaefer and and others, and and there are other people who make this point too. But I, I personally, I think history could learn quite a bit from other fields of study, in particular the social sciences. And I get a lot of resistance um, when I've sort of presented and <laughs> and spoken to people. And I think I think from the perspective of those who are trying to help junior scholars a broader kind of attitude about what history can be and what it should be, I think would benefit certainly those of us who come from non-traditional historical programs. I went came from a public policy program. I've always sort of felt that that history can uh, inform, both inform and be informed by many other kinds of disciplines. Um, And so I've sort of gotten the sense that people talk about interdisciplinariness um, but that is not actually what is being sought.
3: You're right about interdisciplinarity in the sense that we do talk a lot about it, but you're right when it comes to hiring, you hire into a department where the budget exists. And you know that's and I don't think you've discounted any of the other systemic issues that that face early career researchers. I mean, there's a labor market that is you know the the demand you know, far outpaces the the supply of jobs. And so there's that too. Um, but the other thing that I think is, is, you know, in terms of support, I think that's something that we can do as a community and we can build in more support, I hope, either through the things that we've learned over the year, the past two years of the pandemic, like, you know, how we can Zoom into conferences and make them more affordable, or, you know, how we can just call each other up on Zoom now across borders and and have conversations with friends that are working in the same area, you know, like you and I are doing right now. So I think that's a real opportunity.
4: Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I, I, as you point out, there, there are many other greater systemic issues. Many of which I think a lot of people pointed toward the idea that, you know, there frankly are just too many PhD students uh, to go into academia. But on the other hand, um, so you could say, you know, re, you could reduce those those numbers. Alternatively, and I uh, uh, close friend of mine, uh, Emily Whalen, had had kind of authored a piece in the Schaefer, um, yeah, his passport, and I can't blanking on what what year it was. I think it was about a year and a half ago, and she's sort of written about how. Uh, you know, the value of um, alternative paths. Uh, I actually c- came into the PhD program, not imagining that I wanted to go into academia and kind of went through it. And And frankly, I was from just being in the library and f- feeling like I fell in love, I just fell in love with reading letters and diaries um, and thinking, oh, that actually, this is way cooler <laughs> than I thought. You know, I, I think that, and she, she makes a great point, And I, and I think that she, It's not quite like a JD or an MD in the sense that a PhD is, it's not a requirement. You know, if you want to be a doctor, you know, you kind of have to get MD really does lead to a very specific profession for the vast majority of MD people get MDs. That's not the case with PhDs. I sort of think about it much more holistically. And I think if those on the other side do think about it holistically, okay, you're getting a PhD to, you you are getting a set of skills. Those skills are not exclusively for an academic path. Much as an academic path is wonderful and great and, and to be pursued, um, if they can also help you in a variety of other uh, career paths. And I think, you know, I was lucky to be at the Kennedy School, where it is a, I, I think, a professional school, is those kinds of alternative paths are much more uh, frequently uh, considered by PhD students because you're kind of constantly surrounded by practitioners. Um, and there is, I should say, was a huge amount of support at the Kennedy School for those sorts of things. So I actually didn't feel that personally. Uh, but I know that others have. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that that that's something else that's sort of out there. That's a
3: wonderful point. And we've had people on the show that are uh, librarians, that are, are archivists, that are public historians. And sometimes I'm quite jealous of their their career paths. They, you know, have very exciting day-to-day jobs that um, that are that are wonderful. So you're you're absolutely right, uh, Arup. I'm so glad you you could join me for this, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. And please do, I'll put some links on the, the show notes for people to check out your research. It really is wonderful and very significant uh, for those of us working
4: in this area. Thank you so much for having me again. I appreciate um, all your time and uh, talking about about the the 1898 era. Joining me next is Chelsea
3: Gibson, who began her academic journey in North Georgia before migrating up North to New York, where she earned her PhD from SUNY Binghamton. Her thesis explored Russo-American transnational networks and specifically the role that female activists played in the political revolutions of the late 19th century. But you might also know Chelsea from Hnet, or from the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, where she's the editor of the blogs or the newsletters. We owe her a great deal of thanks for doing both of those jobs. And her public history service goes far beyond that. She's a consultant for the Phelps Mansion Museum. She's recorded podcasts for the New Books Network. She's one of the editors at Nursing Cleo, which is a blog project that ties historical scholarship to present-day events, especially on issues such as gender and medicine. She also has shared her best practice teaching techniques on social media, mainly on Twitter, which we'll talk about a little bit. Chelsea's also the interim director of codes at at Binghamton. It's a program that teaches coding to non-computer science majors, such as maybe even aspiring historians. So she's teaching the digital humanists of the future. We'll cover quite a bit of ground in our interview from her research and teaching to how language can benefit early career scholars. Welcome to the show, Chelsea.
5: Thank you for having me, Michael.
3: Well, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. I mean, as academics, we we have several roles. I mean, research, teaching, and our sort of general services and citizenship to our, our universities and the wider public, you do all of those things now. Um, where? I mean, one of the things that's astounded me about your your teaching in particular is that you tweet about it. One of the innovations that you talked about were your weekly encounters. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and why and how it's worked out and played out in your teaching.
5: Sure. So the weekly encounters is a project or an assignment that I came up with a couple of years ago when I was teaching a history of American masculinities. And my favorite thing about gender, it it really, this works with all things. My favorite thing about gender is that once you see it, it's, your world has changed forever. You just cannot unsee gender in your daily lived experience. So I had them go out and say like, okay, every week you're in this class, I want you to tell me how you're encountering masculinity in the wild. And it was such a successful Um, assignment that I started incorporating it into my survey courses. So my, you know, first half and second half of the American survey, they, you normally get, I I at least teach courses of 300 students. So I get a lot of students who are there by under duress typically, that they don't necessarily want to take history, but here they are. And so I started incorporating that as a very clear explanation of this is how this actually impacts your world. Like I'm going to be teaching you information that you will see, you will see it in your daily life, how this is unlocking something for you or how it's making you understand things. So it's it's very simple. I just have them write. Um, basically five weeks out of a 15week semester tell me five times that you heard something in another class that you talked to your mom that you saw a meme that you watched a movie that you played a video game a lot of students suddenly understand tupac lyrics after we talk about the 1990s for example and like they'll they'll talk about it and so um and so it's been really successful i continue to use it i'm using it in a the coding class i'm going to be teaching this semester because they're gonna they're going to encounter that kind of stuff out in the wild in ways that they won't understand prior to the class, but they will once, once we've been kind of dig, digging in. So, so yeah, I shared it on, on uh, Twitter and everybody loved it. And I had so many people emailing me all across the country from all different disciplines, like not just history, but like the sciences. I had a former student who was in an education class and she was like, oh, my teacher said that Dr. Chelsea Gibson had created this and it was like, I had Dr. Chelsea Gibson. <laughs> so it was really, it was really quite lovely. And it's an assignment that I think I continue to use because it really stands the test of time. And it, and it does exactly what I, I ask it to do, which is prove to a student that what you're learning is practical, what you're learning is useful. What you're learning is not just rote memorization. It has utility in your daily life.
3: So you're also a historian. I mean, I know you've got you're talking about all the various hats you wear there. Yeah. Um, but you're, all, you're a historian of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Your sort of intellectual home is with the Society of Historians for the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. How, I wonder, has the weekly encounters touched upon Gilded Age and Progressive Era history? Have students come back to you and said, oh, I understand the Gilded Age and Progressive Era so much better now because of this?
5: Mm-hmm. I definitely think that I mean, the reconstruction, the way that our society defines it is very broad from like the 1860s up to the 1920s. And so obviously teaching reconstruction really has students understanding why we're why we're fighting about this even today, particularly when you start talking about the lost cause myth that is really gathering steam, you know, in the, the the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So I would say that is one of the most common one that I'll see from students. Obviously, when we talk about women's suffrage and they realize how much more complex it is, I always assign Kristen Hoganson's as badly off as the Filipinos, I think is, is her article. I read that in grad school. I loved it. And I continue to assign it because it really shows how you know empire and suffrage and all these things really combined and race. And so students go to that text and then they come back out and they see suffrage through a very more complex kind of lens. And I'm in upstate New York too. so my students will sometimes wander up to Seneca Falls or like maybe they're from Rochester And so it, it I definitely see a lot of things particularly around uh, either suffrage, race or obviously robber barons and industrial capitalists (laughs) because we have a lot of resonance with that period i think
2: hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass.
3: One of the other things that I noticed is that you are a big proponent of language and history. And I was wondering how you incorporate language in the teaching that you do, whether it's foreign languages or shorthand as a language. Um, I mean, I just wonder how you incorporate that into your teaching.
5: I do it in a a couple of ways. So one way is really obvious. When I get the chance to teach a U.S.-Russian history course, I'm teaching them a lot of Russian um, not like so that they can read cyrillic so really, like we're not getting into that but i am teaching them words that help them better understand maybe the soviet period or maybe the um imperial period um you know when i teach my my modern survey i i kind of use my language training in a slightly different way where it's not as appropriate for me to bring in my language except when we're reading soviet propaganda posters and i can translate it for them on the spot and explain you know what the soviets are saying here um but I think like when you learn a language, it really helps you appreciate how learning operates. And it's really helped me understand, like I said, I teach teach hundreds and hundreds of students who are not history majors every year. And for them, the past is a kind of language. It's a a skill that they have to learn. So that's the way I really incorporate a lot of my um, language practice is recognizing that these students are coming to me with an inability to speak historically, to understand historically, and like I'm teaching them a language, which is why I do weekly encounters because what do you do in a language class? You say, well, what did you do last weekend? That's how you warm up every week. You're like, hey, tell me about your weekend. And you're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh wow, I learned this word for like garbage and I use that today. And and that's why I, I really try to do a lot of assignments that get them constantly engaging with the past, like it is a foreign language, um so that they can not only see that it's important, but practice, constantly practice it. Um same goes with writing, I think, as well,
3: yeah, the past is a foreign land. I mean, that it makes perfect sense when it comes to language skills and and history. I think that's a that's a great way of putting it. Um, you mentioned that you 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 work with the students about Soviet history, and your own research, is really, your PhD is around US reformers and Russian terrorists. And you've written a wonderful article, the John Browns of St. Petersburg. I wonder if you could tell listeners about, about that article and its arguments.
5: Yeah. So one thing that I really started being interested in, you know, as you finish your dissertation, you kind of see everything with a new light and maybe you would, you get to the end and you're like, oh, this is what I'm writing about. Like, oh, this is what I'm really interested in. And so when I got to the end of my dissertation, I realized that I'm particularly interested in violence. Like that sounds kind of odd to say, I guess, just forthright, but I'm interested in how we understand it. um, Particularly in the wake of, you know, the January 6th insurgents or whatever we want to call it um you know like really understanding how we justify violence particularly revolutionary violence and when change is necessary when violence is necessary for change and so um one group that i i really picked out as i was as i was writing and and other scholars have have identified this in the past but um one thing i thought was really interesting was that when Russian terrorists started coming to the United States in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. Um, This first generation really looked to the American abolitionists as a natural ally. Not necessarily because, just because, you know, we had freed uh, the serfs and the slaves at the same time, right, Um, 1861 and 1863, but because Russian terrorists, particularly populists, these are not Marxists, I should say, right? These are these are socialist kind of populists, what have you. Um, but they're looking at the abolitionists and they're saying, oh, you knew when it was right to fight. Like you knew when it was, when we needed to go to war to win equality. And so they appeal to these older generation um, who had been maybe involved in the secret six, right? Uh, who had supported John Brown, And so in the 1880s and the 1890s, they are using this language of abolition, not just to tap into like, let's free people, but to tap into that kind of justification of violence that I think abolitionists developed by the 1850s and continue to use, I think, into the late 19th century, like this is when it's right to fight. Um, And so there's this really interesting kind of conversations that are happening between them over the course of the late 19th century, which is mostly what I cover in that article.
3: I think it's great because it shows off the transnational nature of activism. And that's something that we've really been learning more about in the last, I'd say really only 25, 30 years. Yeah. And and how much of that do you think is down to lang- the language barrier? Is it, you know, that we are, you know, you can use Russian archives, I can't do that. I mean, I could probably use Google Translate, right? But that's not going to get me anywhere near to what I need to get to understand these texts. How important is breaking down that language barrier to getting to the transnational roots of international activism?
5: I think it's essential, you know, and I think that, you know, it's very difficult to study a transnational phenomenon with a singular language. Um, And and even like with my Russian skills, sometimes they're not as helpful because everybody writes in French to each other because that was the shared language. And so I've spent six years trying to become fluent in Russian. And then I end up with these documents that are all in French. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. (laughs) So I do think it's really important. And I think, you know, there is a really great book that I just um, did a review of. I think it's, um, I I cannot remember her name right now. I think it's Andrea Bricknell Bellows. That could be wrong. But um, she just did this really interesting comparative history of the emancipation of the serfs and the emancipation of slaves. And she was able, it's not transnational in that she's not showing the two things interacting. She's just showing how each of them happened simultaneously. It's more comparative than it is anything But she has the language skills to go into both of these. And so she's able to say, you know, at the end of the 19th century, advertisers in Russia were using former serfs in their advertising and trying to get them to buy their goods. And she was also able to say in the late 19th century, we're using the visage of emancipated slaves, or actually really, we're we're using the idealized vision, like vision of enslaved people to sell things. And isn't that interesting that both societies are doing this? But that's impossible to do unless you have the language skills to go back and forth. And that's a big ask. <laughs> you know, my, I, I, I find a lot of graduate programs don't really give you the space to learn a language. And so I think that's one of the biggest barriers honestly is that if you want to do this, you really have to like sacrifice. Like I had many semesters where I did not talk to people because I was like in Russian for five or seven hours a week. (laughs) And then I went to TA and then I went to classes and they'd be like, where have you been? I'm like, I'm in my office, my door is closed. I have no time. (laughs) You have to make sacrifices really uh, on top of an already really intense uh, program uh, of study. But, But yeah, so yeah, of course it's important. But do we have the resources to get us there? I don't know yet.
3: <laughs> well, I've often wondered about that, whether we can find alternatives, because I, you know, at my August age, are not, is, I'm not going to be taking up Russian, you know, just to get, you know, into the... I'd, I'd like to learn more about the Russo-Japanese War. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take up two other languages to to get there and then only find out that I need French in the end. What what I was thinking is that maybe we need teams of colleagues to work more closely together to get to these transnational sort of stories and understand that collaborative work in the humanities is possibly as important as collaborative work in the sciences or the hard sciences.
5: Absolutely. That's one thing that's really drawn me to digital humanities is because the ethos of collaboration, I think, is central to that, and I find found that really, really compelling. Um, I definitely, the pandemic probably doesn't help it, but I've definitely felt how isolated we are as kind of silos of, of knowledge and that like collaboration would make our lives probably a lot easier as historians make it more rich make our scholarship better but um there's also i think a lot of institutional barriers to that you know in the way that we don't recognize collaboration in the same way that the sciences do but i agree a 100% right team up with a japanese historian and a russian historian and there you go right
3: <laughs> absolutely absolutely and and we've been talking about this in In all the academies around the world about interdisciplinarity or cross disciplinarity whatever you want to call it, you are living that right now you just mentioned your work in digital humanities. Can you tell us a little bit more about the coding project that you're working on at the moment of the sort of cross departmental coding work that you're doing in Binghamton.
5: Yeah, so I'm now taking over as the interim director of the Binghamton Codes Project, which was recently created on campus, Um, and it basically appeals to any student who is in a Harper College, which is basically our kind of humanities um, and sciences college, and um, basically anybody who isn't doing computer science as their major. Really, so I'm able to take basically any student who thinks that they wanna code and thinks it might be useful for the job market, who thinks it might be useful for research and teach them the basic foundation of coding. We we're, we're, we have two classes right now as part of our program. We're hoping to grow it so that we're learning lots of other things, but just like being able to do basic data analysis can really transform a project and can make something that would take forever much easier, you know, or even just learning how to clean up your data. Like, let's say that you're doing surveys and you have, uh, you have 200 entries, but everybody has spelled, let's say like the, their, their occupation slightly differently. Now you could go through and be like, oh, I have to capitalize the T and teacher each individual time, or you could write a program that does it for you, you know? And so you've cleaned your data and then you can run that data. And, um, and, and yeah, so it's, it's really exciting because there's, it's another language, <laughs> right? Um, and my interest in languages is just another way of unlocking the world, and particularly given that tech has such a ubiquitous influence on us today, just giving them the basic literacy of understanding how these things work, that it isn't magic, <laughs> because nobody thinks Russian is magic, but people think coding is magic, right? You don't understand how it operates. So adding that kind of power to to students um can help any discipline, really, and and, and and we're hoping that it will basically help students get this skill and then go out, and maybe they're an environmental science major, and they want to use coding to do that, or maybe they are interested in, you know, racial justice and the policing, prisons, whatever, and they're able to use this this skill to do some sort of really interesting project that way, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. I mean, everyone's going to be needing to engage with computers or coding at some stage, and the digital humanities is only growing more and more. I wondered if you could say something maybe about the trials and tribulations of early career researchers. And and one of the things that I want to do with this episode is to kind of raise awareness of particularly historians, but also, you know, anyone else that is starting out, you know, with a PhD, you know your story about working in public history, working in uh in digital humanities is that a is that a tale for others to possibly follow? you think
5: i mean, I think it's hard it it's kind of hard to... the 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 simple answer of like why I do so many things is because I felt like I had to uh when I was trying to get onto the job market. I'm genuinely interested in a lot of things, but you typically get a PhD because you are curious and you like to learn lots of things. And so the, the job market and, and like the attempt to kind of make your space as an intellectual, as a person, you know uh, as an academic, at what, what have you um, the temptation to, to try everything, to make yourself as marketable as possible is very is very real, Um, you know, and so I'm very thankful that I have pursued all of the different paths because they did end up kind of coalescing to give me a more stable job prospect. Um, But that isn't always the case, you know, and and so I, I my advice is to try everything, but settle on something, (laughs) which can be very difficult to do when you're very early in your career. And honestly, the the reality is, is that sometimes you just have to work hard for somebody to notice you three years later. And that's, that's hard too, (laughs) you know, but it all develops your intellectual capacity. It all develops your ability to talk widely and broadly with a, with a lot of different people and to network. Um, but I don't know. I'm looking at it as a pandemic. You know, I finished my dissertation and then basically the pandemic began. So I've been in a very weird environment where I couldn't go out and just do research if I wanted to. And now with Russia, you know, I'm listening to stories today about how we're upping our NATO troops and we who knows what's going to be happening. Russia has not been a very hospitable place to want to go do research in for the last couple of years too. So I've had limitations in that way which has led me to kind of grow digital humanities and that kind of work that I could do from my house as well, you know, so it gave me some flexibility. I don't know if that answered your question fully.
3: (laughs) I think it absolutely answered my question. I think what you're doing is you're harnessing all of your skills that you've learned as a historian. And I, you know, I mean, I want to tell my graduate students and my undergraduate students about how that is so important. I mean, the job market is about your skills, not about what degree says, you know, so I think that's something that I, I really want to focus on even with my own, with, with my own students. Yeah. Um, Could
5: I say one more thing on that? Of because course, yeah. one thing that I've really started telling my students who were, who are thinking about pursuing an MA or a PhD is that to be in this field at this moment, you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to sell yourself. Like you it's, it's not, it's not a track that has a clear end and like that can be very difficult when you're trying to figure out what you want to do and you just have to be comfortable with the fact that like in 5 years you don't know what you'll be doing because maybe the job that you end up doing isn't even there yet right because it's going to be a coalescing of of various skills that you've done so you just have to be very very like cognizant that you have to be an entrepreneur i think to be very successful if you pursue a phd that's just kind of where we are right now
3: I think that's a great way of putting it, too, because entrepreneurs sometimes fail as well. And there's ventures that they that they have that are are not successful, that are risky. And I I think, you know, some of the things that I've done in my own career, whether it's starting a website or even starting a podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no immediate reward from that other than the fact that you enjoy putting your stuff out there. But that's a that's a risk in itself, too. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So it's something that all students and early career scholars should be be aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, Chelsea, I can't thank you enough for joining the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And please go out and read John Brown's of St. Petersburg, because it was such a fun read. And if if you're not following Chelsea on Twitter already, it's a it's a must, (laughs) especially for the teaching tips. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you so much. My final guest is Alex Bryn, visiting lecturer at my own University of Roehampton in London. Full disclosure, Alex is teaching my classes this term while I finish a book project, and I thought it was important to give him a platform because I have first-hand knowledge of his teaching excellence, and I know that his research is incredibly stimulating. He's also just a wonderful colleague. Alex earned his PhD from the University of Nottingham in 2017, investigating the legacy of the Monroe Doctrine in the early 20th century. Now, although the Monroe Doctrine has been a constant feature of American foreign relations since the 1820s, the centennial of the Doctrine in the roaring 1920s has been pretty much overlooked. And Alex's work revivifies the legacy of the Doctrine and aims to understand how it led to modern Pan-Americanism. Now, I could talk to him for hours about the book that he published in 2020 on this very topic, but he also wrote a riveting article for the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on aviation and Pan-Americanism which is what we'll discuss at length here. Welcome to the show, Alex.
1: Yeah, uh, again, thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to to talk about my research with you.
3: I know that you've published this really great article in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. It's on aviation and Pan-Americanism. It's fascinating, not least because flight in the early 20th century, like all new technologies, held such promise, and yet we know it became a deadly part of warfare, as well so how did you I just want to know how you came to the project because as you say it's a rather understudied topic and I know you're not a pilot or an aviator yourself Mm. how how did you get here
1: (laughs) yeah well um it like a lot of things it came from a sort of an archival discovery um so whilst I was conducting my research for my for my my book, uh, which is on the history of the Monroe Doctrine in the early 20th century, I came across a letter from uh, the uh, um, um, from an individual who was an aviator. Uh, and he was sending a letter to uh, the Pan American Union. And he said something on the lines. Again, it was very brief. He just said, Oh, I'd like to meet uh, and chat about aviation because I think it can do, you know, it can do something to help unify the Americas. You know, it can generate Pan-Americanism. Uh, and I, at the time, I just kind of took a photo of it and thought, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting. And I didn't really think anything of it, but I came back to it after uh, I'd done the work on my book. uh, And I realized, oh, actually, a lot of aviators were talking about Pan-Americanism, you know, during the, uh, during the progressive era in particular. Um, So as I I began to kind of look into, you know, these various uh, aeronautical organizations that were forming, you know, now that aviation was becoming sort of a, a tenable, sort of industry, uh, um, you know, I I realized that aviators were were looking to Latin America and looking at the ways in which aviation would change the relations between the United States and the other American nations.
3: Okay, would you bring us up to speed on what's happening in the world of aviation in the early 20th century? I mean, I think most of us know that Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, sees the Wright brothers fly their plane. And we know that's in the early 1900s. I think it's 1903, maybe, or 1905. I can't remember exactly. But uh, tell us what's happening in the world of aviation so we get a background to the story that's that's part of this
4: article.
1: Yeah. So what we see, it's really in the 1910s. That's when sort of uh, heavier-than-air aircraft sort of become uh, well, feasible. You know, we, you know, I'm sure we all, you know, can can remember what you know the first heavier-than-air aircraft looked like. You know, very unusual, strange machines, um, and sort of what we kind of think of as the kind of you know uh, early heavier-than-air aircraft developed, you know, during the 1910s. Um, and it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. Um, you know, there are lots of positive developments because you know they're actually able to be flown. But there are lots of hindrances as well. You know, this is very much an experimental stage. Uh, which I guess is one of the reasons why lots of, uh, you know, Americans found aviation so exciting because they were really testing, you know, the limits of what a human could do in the air. Um, but but at this point in time, um, you know, aircraft, they can't really transport individuals, they can't transport produce, um, you know, uh, they had very limited uh, combat ability. Um, so it's, It's still in a stage of development, you know, during the Progressive Era, and that's really important, I think, for the kind of the arguments that I make in my article, because it's about the promise of aviation, rather than the actual kind of uh, tenable impact they can have upon inter-American relations. It is that that sense of belief that aviation can do something, uh, and that desire to use this technology for good, regardless of what it is actually capable of in that moment.
3: That's interesting, the promise, because I think when I read about this, I thought about Pan Am, the airline. And I mean, that was the first airline that I ever flew with as a kid. Of course, Pan Am doesn't exist anymore. And of course, the idea of Pan Americanism existed well before the company's inception. But can you tell us a little bit about the connection between aviation and the idea of Pan Americanism?
1: Sure. Um, I, su- I suppose I should also just briefly describe, you know, or sort of explain what I interpret Pan Americanism to be, because it's quite a complex term, you know, it has lots of different definitions and can, you know, has various different forms. But I guess in a general sense, it's really the notion that the United States and the republics of Latin America share some kind of special relationship um, and ought to therefore cooperate for mutual benefits. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of the, the promotion of inter-American unity, things like political cooperation, economic cooperation, intellectual cooperation, basically, you know, uh, solidifying those inter-American linkages for mutual benefit. Um, and, you know, aviation was really seen as a way to foster Pan-Americanism because, it allowed, you know, essentially, you know, aviation transcends borders. You know, if you can fly over them, borders become you know, it's kind of a bit more intangible. Um, And, you know, a lot of, uh, aviators and Pan Americanists within the United States—you know those that advocated Pan Americanism—you know they believed that this would bring the Americas closer together. You know we can think about you know uh, globalization—you know in, in sort of more contemporary times—you know the, internet, the increasing interconnectedness of the world through things like the internet. This is what aviation was considered at that time. You know it was, it was a way to bring people closer together. It's like we, you can transport—you uh, know—cultural uh, media. Uh, through aviation if it serves as a transportation sort of device um, and it can overcome geographic barriers you know again this is the point in time when the Panama Canal you know is is, is being constructed uh, and that's seen as a way that you know we can link uh, the Americas together through transportation but aviation of course you know has the ability to, to transcend uh, geographical hindrances in a way that you know, had been previously unseen. So really, um, it was it was that kind of ability to transcend boundaries that kind of speaks to the wider Pan-Americanism, and that's why I think you know a lot of aviators were were thinking in those terms because you know again you know the very nature that aviation made Americans look beyond their own borders because they transcend borders. You know that sort of drew the attention southward, as it were. You know, to so the rest of the of the Americas. Great,
3: and. It seems to me that early aviation offers some interesting insights into how state and private collaboration worked in the early 20th century, not to mention the new area of airspace and who can operate and own the skies. Uh, how does your work explain the reach of the state and the initiatives of private entrepreneurs and, uh, I suppose, adventurers, really?
1: Yeah. Well, this is the interesting thing, really, is because the United States government, until after really this, the First World War, it didn't really concern itself with aviation that much uh, at least if you compare it to you know other nations of the world especially European powers um you know it didn't it didn't sort of have a, a particularly uh sort of clear objective um so what this meant was that private aviators had a lot more well they had they had a more, much more of a free hand in sort of um what they wanted to do. There wasn't kind of you know government uh, pressure to kind of you know see aviation develop in a certain way. You know, the government wasn't really trying to shape the industry. Um, so there was a lot more of a free hand here when it came to you know how to conceptualize aviation, um, which you know meant that you know particular individuals, you know, whether they were prominent aviators or, or prominent Pan-Americanists, they were able to kind of stay a lot more along their own kind of personal beliefs and advocacy of either aviation as a, as an industry or pan-Americanism as, a, as an ideal.
3: And speaking specifically to the ownership of the skies, your article talks a little bit about how the skies are conceived as a public space, but also then the states that occupy, or I suppose this, where the space occupies in, the, in a state, I should say the state Owns the airspace, but but obviously there's this sense that no one can own the air or the skies,
1: right? Uh, and um, the various kind of uh, 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 sort of air aviation organisations that exist in the United States, um, they uh, they pretty much perceive the air very much in that way that you know essentially the activity of aviation it, it does it transcends boundaries. You know, it, it's that the Americas as a whole. Is kind of the airspace that they should be operating in, and that's that's really how they should consider aviation as kind of a very kind of Western hemispheric, uh, you know, uh, domain. Um, and well, I suppose what's quite interesting, really, is that in this period, efforts to sort of enforce any kind of legal. Um, sort of airspace it doesn't really happen this is something that happens a lot later so it's really not until really the 1930s that this is even talked about in any serious degree uh, i mean you know it, it comes up a conversation at various you know uh pan-american conferences for example you know uh, various delegates start talking about oh we need to think about you know how we need to standardize you know uh, aviation initiatives and, and how we need, we need to sort of draw, draw up you know um sort of uh, uh, airspace kind of regions But nothing really happens it's just kind of we should talk about this and then it doesn't really happen until sort of the 1930s is when actual kind of sort of treaties are starting to be signed where these kind of initiatives actually take place um so so again it's you know in in the progressive era in this moment when aviation is starting to sort of develop it really is kind of this this uh, attention on promise and what's going to come in the future rather than actually solidifying any Sort of actual rules when it comes to sort of who owns the air,
3: and we know that World War one changed the way the world thinks about aviation, but then when we think about the Americas, World War one doesn't really touch the Americas the way it does say mainland Europe or continental Europe. so how does the the world of aviation how does the how does the world of aviation affect the idea of pan americanism during that period of World war one
1: so what it really does is that it shifts attention away from pan-americanism and initiatives in aviation that's really what the war does um and here what i'm really thinking of is that you know rather than seen as tools of sort of uh interconnection uh, airplanes become more seen as a tool of war um and you know if we look at kind of the various kind of um expositions that are taking place during this period you know aviation expositions there's a lot of focus on things like what guns can an airplane have, you know, how can it be used in a combat environment? Um, And so we see, you know, what we see in a kind of imagery and the way that aeroplanes are kind of um, displayed to the public is that they're now displayed as tools of war rather than, you know, uh, sort of inventions that can connect people together. Um, So even though, you know, uh, the the United States and, you know, various Latin American nations didn't, you know, weren't weren't affected in the same way as, you know, European nations, uh, that kind of sense that aviation can be used as a tool of war became important and you see this uh, particularly uh, prominently in um the uh, the preparedness movement you know of course when we think about the preparedness movement in the united states we often think about the navy and we think about you know that that need for you know we need a larger navy because the first world war you know it is going on but you know the preparedness organizations uh, were also advocating for you know the government to actually get involved in aviation and say well look you know these are the nations that are using aircraft in combat we need aircraft because what if aviation develops to the extent that, oh, I don't know, Imperial Germany can end up flying across the ocean? Uh, you know, we, you know, we, the ocean was you know, it's seen as this, you know, great barrier that protected the Americas from, you know, any kind of potential invasion. But what if aviation develops to the extent that we are actually vulnerable? And you know, it's during this period that you get some of these. Um, sort of quite fantastical stories of, of uh, you know, uh, a victorious Germany invading Brazil because it can fly over there and because there are lots of German uh, immigrants in Brazil and using Brazil as a base to then invade the United States. And that's all facilitated because, you know, aviation changes the reach of, of the of various nations, uh, you know, military might. Um, so so really, yeah, I suppose to summarize, you know, it, it changes the, the way in which aviation is considered. It's no longer sort of a uh, considered purely in, in sort of peaceful terms. It's now, well, warfare is kind of where the industry should be heading.
3: So what does that do for the idea of Pan-Americanism? Are you saying that basically World War One, not directly, but indirectly, uh, leads to the sort of demise of the idea of Pan-Americanism?
1: Yes, indirectly, certainly. I mean there, there were kind of discussions that oh you know there can be a kind of inter-american fleet as it were, you know to, to defend uh, the Americas from any kind of potential you know uh, military threat um but 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 really, yeah, the kind of extent to which Pan-American initiatives were, were pursued just became less and less interesting to those involved in aviation, because that, that didn't seem to be where the industry was heading. It was, well, you know, we, we should start focusing on military aviation because that's that's the kind of way to, well, for the industry to flourish. You know, that, that's where technological advancements will take place. Um, so really, you know, it's, it's understandable that aviators would pursue that line of, of trajectory. You know, initially it was, it was you know, well, Aviation could develop and blossom because we can use it to foster Pan-Americanism and to, you know connect the Americas together. But as soon as you know warfare becomes uh, a kind of central component of aviation, that's where aviators tend to kind of funnel their interest towards.
3: An interesting story because it's, there's so much going on here about capitalism and where money gets uh, moved during a period of war, and it's interesting to see that things like trade and commerce sort of drop out of the purview of most uh, aviators during this time. It's a, it's a it's a great article, and I really enjoyed reading it, and I just wondered, where do you go from here? What are your plans with either this research or your research in the future?
1: Well, one of the kind of driving forces behind this article was a, a broader interest that I have in Pan-Americanism, you know, during the early 20th century, um, and... sort of broader question that i'd like to answer or or to investigate really is just the ways in which pan-americanism changed u.s citizens perceptions of the world you know pan-americanism as a field of study um historians tend to focus on the ways in which it's been utilized uh uh to kind of hide informal imperialism in latin america and it certainly has you know the united states has developed various pan-american policies that are you know hiding sort of more nefarious uh, policies under the radar. Um, But, you know, recently lots of scholars are interested in looking at Pan-Americanism on its its own merits and kind of thinking, well, yes, you know, we can understand that it was used for imperial measures, but, you know, did people actually, were were there genuine advocates of Pan-Americanism? Did it change the way in which Americans were thinking about the position of the United States in the world or or the hemisphere? Um, So, really you this uh, insight into aviation was a kind of, um, almost like a, 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 to test the waters, you know, this is an example of the ways in which Pan-Americanism influenced US citizens in some way, you know, it changed the way they were thinking about uh, aviation. So really, I guess uh, my, my, my goal is to pursue more of these, is to find more interesting case studies, uh, you know, to demonstrate that Pan-Americanism did influence you know, Americans' lives in various different ways. I think it's a great
3: starting point because there are so many policies that are coming into play here, whether it's in 1906, and Elihu Root's trip down to Latin America, whether it's Pan American conferences that are trying to connect the Americas through cables or railroads or roads, it's a really interesting topic, and I think you're you're at the vanguard of a turn we're perhaps seeing in the way we conceive of the relationship between
1: the United States and the rest of Latin America. I'd hope so. Yes, uh, I mean, you know, I really do think that when it comes to the history of the United States, we need to consider it within an inter-American context. You know, it, it's really important to position it within that broader hemispheric identity. So, so, and that's really what you know, partly my research is aiming to do is to emphasize that when we think about the history of the United States its connection to the other Americas, you know, is central to the story.
3: That's great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. And thanks so much to my other guests, Chelsea Gibson and Aru Mukherjee for joining me to talk about early career research that's going on. It's the vanguard. It's the exciting uh, sort of cresting of a wave in Gilded Age and Progressive Era scholarship. I'm delighted to have all of them. And a call to action to any listeners is this. Go follow these exciting scholars on Twitter or on social media read their stuff. In the show's notes, I will put links to the articles that we discussed. Uh, They're all really great articles and worthy of your time and attention. Thanks so much. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow The Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickculinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.